coming up on Philosophy Talk. Why is there something rather than nothing? I think we really got something in. What do we got? An idea. What idea? An idea for the show. I still don't know what the idea is. It's about nothing. Right. Can you conceive of there not being a universe? What would it mean for there to be nothing? Everybody's doing something. We'll do nothing. Science can explain what happens, but it can't explain why anything happens at all. Does that make God something or nothing? Our guest is Jim Holt, author of Why Does the World Exist? Nothing from nothing beats nothing. say, what's your show about? I say nothing. There you go. I think you may have something here. Why is there something rather than nothing? Coming up on Philosophy Talk. Hi, I'm Ray Briggs. And I'm Josh Landy. Thank you for downloading this episode of Philosophy Talk. Did you know that we've got a library of more than 500 episodes over at our website? Yeah, at philosophytalk.org, we question everything. Except your intelligence. From Aristotle to Zeno, from anarchy to Zen. Become a subscriber today at philosophytalk.org. And now, on with the show. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm John Perry. And I'm Ken Taylor. We're here at the studios of KALW San Francisco. Continuing conversations that began at Philosopher's Corner on the Stanford campus. That's where Ken teaches philosophy, and I did for 40 years. Today, it's another installment in our philosophical guide to the cosmos. We're asking the age-old question, why is there something rather than nothing? Well, Ken, that's either a very silly question or a very profound one, or maybe both. What would an answer even look like? Well, ask yourself what w answers to why questions ever look like. There's two kinds of why questions, at least. There's the kind that asks for a reason or the kind that asks for a cause. We could be asking both of those things. Well, that's a great distinction. Reasons versus causes. But how does it help with our original question? Well, take an example. Ask yourself why I'm here in the studio today. What would a reason for that be? The reason you're here is because we're doing a show. Yeah, and if we wanted to explain the cause, we might describe it in terms of my how my body, together with my car, together with certain physical forces, got me from point A in space to point B in space or something like that. Okay, very good so far. But I just don't see how we could ever decipher a reason for the universe existing. Reasons, unlike causes, usually require someone to have beliefs, desires, and plans so that something is reasonable or not and can motivate them. You came to the studio today because you believed we were doing a show and you wanted to be part of it. But prior to the world existing, there was nobody who could have reasons for creating it. <laughs> Wait a minute, John. You're forgetting about the big dude in the sky, you know, God? Oh, him, sure. Well, lots of people probably think God decided, hey, wouldn't it be cool if I created a cosmos? Uh, and maybe that's how it happened, but that doesn't answer our question. Well, what do you mean? Why not? Why doesn't it answer our question? Well, is God something or nothing? Well, God's something, obviously, John. 
Well, so if the question is, why is there something rather than nothing, the answer would have to explain God's existence, too. No, 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 because God, John, explains his own existence. He's his own reason and his own cause. How do you like that? Uh, I think it's gobbledygook. <laughs> but at any rate, let's put it in a more mild way. I'm not completely convinced. <laughs> okay, so, so okay, I won't try to convince you. That would take too long. So let's bracket God. Bracket reasons, if you like. There's no reason for the universe, but still, surely you grant that there's a cause to the universe. I mean, you have heard of the Big Bang, haven't you, John? Oh, yes, I've heard of the Big Bang. But that's not a good answer to the question either, Ken. Oh, no, come on. Why not? That's a great answer. Why not? Well, you know, I don't have any creds as a cosmologist, I admit. But it seems to me if the Big Bang caused our universe, then it must have been an event, right? Well, yeah, it was the first event, the event that preceded all other events. I like to call it the beginning of all beginnings. Then it must have had a cause, too. Did the Big Bang just appear from nothing? Or was there some initial state or event that preceded it? I see what you're up to, John. You're pulling your old philosophical tricks on me. You're trying to get me trapped in an infinite regress, aren't you? You're trying to get me to say that if the Big Bang was an event... Well, then it must have had a cause. And whatever caused the Big Bang must also have had a cause, and so on and so forth, and then we're down the rabbit hole. Well, uh, to trap you in infinite regress, we only have an hour. That wouldn't work unless every answer you give takes only half as long as the previous uh, well, answer. Yeah. I guess that's not the point no, you're making, no. though. Well, 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 <laughs> yes, look, I got so, I'm trying to trap you in an infinite yeah, regress. Yeah, okay, John. So look, what if what if we deny that the Big Bang was an event at all? It was no it was not an event. All right. If it wasn't an event, then it's a non-event. It's not the Big Bang. Bangs are events. It's the Big Nothing. But how could a Big Nothing cause anything to come into existence? Uh, Okay, I grant you that's, that's tricky. I mean, if you start off with absolutely nothing, no space, no time, no God, no initial conditions, then how does something come into existence from nothing? Is it magic? Well, maybe the world just is. Two of my favorite philosophers, David Hume and Bertrand Russell, thought that. Maybe it's just a brute fact that God exists or that stuff exists, but there's no explaining how either of them got into the picture. Yeah, that just feels like a big cop-out to me. I mean, I admit that we haven't been able to figure out why there's something rather than nothing, but that doesn't mean there's no answer to the question, does it? Well, ask different people, get different answers. So we sent our roving philosophical reporter, Shuka Kalantari, to talk to some different people, one a devout Catholic, one a devout physicist. She files this report. Right before the Big Bang about 14 billion years ago, there was nothing. Nothing is, unfortunately, a complicated subject. Lawrence Krauss is a physics professor at Arizona State University and author of A Universe from Nothing. Nothing has a variety of forms, and the simplest is that um, empty space without any particles or radiation. Many people, that would have been the nothing of the Bible, for example, just an eternal void. That isn't nothing anymore because we understand that empty space is, given the laws of quantum mechanics and relativity, is a boiling, bubbling brew of virtual particles that pop in and out of existence. So according to physics, before the Big Bang, there was empty space and virtual particles. A vacuum state. A vacuum state is not an empty void. It's not a state of nothingness. Zach Krajasek is vice president of the Station of the Cross, a Catholic radio station in Buffalo, New York. He says something must have created these virtual particles, some original creator. And then there's space itself. Space couldn't have come from nothing. But the physicist says 
That's not true. If you apply quantum mechanics to gravity, space itself may pop into existence, space and time, out of no space and time. And so you have no space, no time, no particles, no matter, no radiation. That's a pretty good approximation for many people about nothing. Bottom line, Krauss says there's no real difference between nothing and something, because out of nothing can come something. And it doesn't require any, certainly any supernatural shenanigans. This something from nothing idea doesn't fly with the Catholic. There had to be an initial cause, something outside this process that starts the chain. And that original prime mover uh, would be God. On the other hand, Krauss says this notion of a prime mover, of having an original cause, only works within the framework of space and time. But maybe there was no space or time before the Big Bang. If that's the case, then all these classical ideas about causality go out the window. You can't have a cause before you have time. And so if you ask what's the cause of something before there's time, it's, not, it's a meaningless question. And then physics forces us to change the, our understanding of things. Physics isn't forcing Krajasic to do anything. God is not part of the temporal world. He's, he exists separately from time. He could have chosen the Big Bang as the way to create the world in time. There is another theory about the beginning of the universe, the multiverse, the idea that other universes exist outside of our own. But our universe didn't exist. Everything we see did not exist, and that's what I mean. There was nothing. There was no space, no time, no matter, no radiation. Anytime you talk about the universe, whether it's this universe or another universe, it's still something that exists. And, you know, physics hasn't, or any science, has not been able to sh prove how these things came into being. ASU professor Krauss says the multiverse theory fulfills some people's notions that the hand of God was at play. Something that exists outside of our universe, outside the laws of physics that's eternal, etc. Well, the difference between the multiverse and God is the multiverse is well motivated by, by our ideas of physics, where God is just invented by people who want to stop thinking about the question. Zach Krajasek from the Station of the Cross radio says physicists like Krauss can probe the origins of the universe all they want, but no one will ever be able to empirically find the answer. They can't prove or disprove the existence of God. We can, however, make reasonable conclusions about God's existence based on, for example, the beauty and the order of the universe, you know, and the things he's made. So it seems to me that nothing could be further from reason than to suggest that the order and beauty we see is the result of millions or billions of coincidences that are occurring constantly and have occurred constantly from the beginning of time. Arguing that science can never address the question suggests you know how the question can be addressed. And the point is we don't know what will always elude science. We just keep trying. Can physics figure out what came before the Big Bang? Can it unravel why we have something rather than nothing? Or is that beyond science? Maybe someone someday will discover the nature of the universe. In fact, maybe John and Ken can do it in the next hour. No pressure, gentlemen. For Philosophy Talk, I'm Shuka Kalantari. Thanks, Shuka. Well, Ken, Shuka seemed to leave us with three choices. Uh, the start of things was the most colossal thing ever, God, or the most minimal thing ever, a couple of little virtual particles in gravity, or a multiverse, which seems to me about as likely as God. But anyway, I'm John Perry. With me is my fellow Stanford philosopher, Ken Taylor. But I love her confidence in us. And today, we're <laughs> asking why there is something rather than nothing. We're joined now by Jim Holt. He's author of 
Why Does the World Exist? An Existential Detective Story. Jim, welcome to Philosophy Talk. Oh, thanks. Great to be here. Uh, hi, Jim. So, so the question about why the world exists, why there's something rather than nothing, has got to mm -hmm. be one of the trickiest philosophical questions either, whether it's because it's so profound or so nutty, I don't know. But how on earth, <laughs> or how in the cosmos, did you end up writing a whole book about that? Yeah, uh, it's something that's uh, kind of uh, been in the suburbs of my mind all my life. When I was um, uh, a rebellious, uh, callow high school student, I, you know, I grew up in a religious uh, family in rural Virginia, and I started thinking, I, I don't buy this story about the world exists because God made it that I've been hearing uh, all my life. And so I went to the local college library and pulled out a book off the shelf that was titled uh, What is Metaphysics? And it was by Martin Heidegger. You know, existentialism, that seemed cool. And the very first uh, sentence in that book was, why is there something rather than nothing at all? And the, the poetry and the power of that just bowled me over. And um, uh, when I went on to college and, uh, and through the rest of my life, I discovered that the 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 question lay at the intersection of all the things that I really was interested in, philosophy, science, religion, and so forth. And then eventually I thought, well, you know, this is the perfect book subject. And to my astonishment, this seemed a very esoteric thing to write about, and my publisher certainly thought it was. But suddenly the God Wars, the so-called God Wars erupted in which well, uh, let, Lawrence let, Krauss let, was let, under, let, yeah. Let's leave that till a little later. Now, Jim, okay, I just good. want to say you've not only written a wonderful book, you also have a great TED Talk for those of our listeners who want a kind of a quicker introduction to your thinking. Uh, but but uh, let, let's end up this uh, part of the show by asking this question. Our roving philosophical reporter gave us the rest of the hour to figure out why there's something rather than nothing. But before we get started, right. maybe you should help us understand what would even count as an answer to the question. Yeah, so two of the answers that were broached already, uh, God did it, uh, the Big Bang did it, and the Big Bang can be explained uh, along scientific lines, or maybe... No one did it. It's just a brute fact. The universe is just there, and that's all. Those are the three, you know, more or less obvious things. I think but there's Jim, a Jim, room wait a for minute. something wait. else. Jim, wait a second. Okay. If, uh, the, the, those three aren't obvious. Only one is unobvious to me, is that uh, the universe is just there. The God did it or the Big Bang did it. Neither yeah. of those answers why there's something rather than nothing, because God's a something, the Big Bang's a something. So neither of those yeah, even approaches the, uh, being an answer, does it? Right. Well... Um, uh, God is uh, is certainly something. God might exist of his own nature. I don't believe in God, by the way. I'm an atheist. Uh, I, by the way, I think a lot of the physicists who talk about science being able to, to uh, explain the mystery of the universe, uh, the mystery of existence, are actually crypto-religious without realizing it, including uh, Lawrence Krauss. But um, <laughs> the, the interesting thing is to open up uh, uh, other conceptual possibilities and maybe refine the question a little bit. The question, why is there something rather than nothing, as you pointed out, it sounds really profound and awesome, but it could be a nonsense question, but it might lead us to a more intelligent question, and I hope it will, you know, in the next uh, 20 minutes or so. Right, but I just want to lay down a marker. I don't think appealing to okay. God as another something explains why there's something rather than nothing. Okay. Uh, so and God I don't explain is, appealing to the Big Bang as another something, as the first something, explains why there's something rather than nothing. How They don't even have the form so, of it. I just want to okay. point out there's a distinction between your view that God doesn't explain why there's something rather than nothing 
and rejecting God, right? Well, you could believe right. in God and think, yeah, but he was something, so that doesn't answer that question. Do you agree or just, just, just so we if we all agree, then we have to go to a break? Yeah, let me just say one thing. God is, uh, you can define God very simply. You just set all of the parameters equal to infinity. That's, you could say that's a very simple hypothesis as to why there's a world. If you eliminate God and just look at the universe we see around us, it's, it's got all kinds of weird, arbitrary features. There are 37 families of elementary particles. There are 30 arbitrary constants of nature. There are, there are you know, 57 d- different fields in the, uh, in the uh, yeah. uh, standard model of particle. It's, a, it's sort of a crazily arbitrary world. So you would think if there were a god, at least there would be a sort of a secure, non-arbitrary, simple foundation for it all. Okay. Unfortunately, okay. I don't believe in God. Well, that's right. So, look, we're going to have to dig into this after, after after the break. You're listening to Philosophy Talk. Today, we're thinking about why the universe exists at all, why anything exists at all. Why is there something rather than nothing? Can the Big Bang explain why the world exists? Or do we need an explanation for the Big Bang, too? Will we be ever able to explain the birth of the universe? Something, nothing, and the existence of the universe when Philosophy Talk continues. Hope you are enjoying the program. To keep our stream free, we need your help. Become a strategic partner. Donate $250. Receive lots of benefits. But any amount helps. Let's get back to the program. Tuesday and Wednesday, nothing. Thursday for a change, a little more nothing. Friday once more, nothing. A Monday. The Fugs and the greatest song ever written about nothing. Whether it was inspired by Martin Heidegger or Martin Marijuana, I'm not quite sure. I'm John Perry. This is Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. (laughs) Except your intelligence. I'm Ken Taylor, and we're thinking about why there is something, namely a cosmos at all, rather than nothing. Our guest is Jim Holt. He's the author of Why Does the Universe Exist? So, Jim, uh, I was kind of dissing the Big Bang at, toward the end of the last segment as an answer to the question, why is there something rather than nothing? I mean, I want to think about this I'm, in cosmological terms, in physical terms. I mean, do people who believe in the Big Bang think of it as an answer to the question, why is there something rather than nothing? I'm, I'm with you on the, uh, uh, in your conviction that science does not answer the mystery of existence. But the Big Bang... Uh, you know, referring to this event that happened 13.8 billion years ago in which all, the observable universe seemed to explode into existence out of nothing, I would say among cosmologists now, the, the uh, consensus is that the Big Bang is not a unique event. Uh, it's a kind of local event. Big Bangs are happening all the time in a sort of larger context, which is uh, called the uh, eternal uh, chaotic, inflationary universe, and um, so uh, you know the the our observable universe seems to have uh, arisen a finite time in the past, but it it's it seems likely to me that it's part of a much larger ensemble that's quite possibly eternal. So this is you know this may represent progress because it gets rid of the need to explain an origin. 
how did you know how did this whole universe and all of these you know hundreds of millions of galaxies and so forth pop into existence out of sheer nothingness? Well, it didn't. It popped into existence out of a larger ensemble that's eternal. So let me. The great let, scientists have always believed that you know Einstein believed the universe was eternal. The idea that the universe well, what's, is what's, finite what's, in time is is a, is a, is a, a, a Judeo Christian. Well, sl- slow slow down a bit. So slow down a bit. Okay. So Happy to. It, <laughs> you said a couple a lot of different things. I mean, you said the universe, right? And then. You said something about locality. I mean, some people when some sometimes when people think about the universe, right? They think of this totally connected space-time continuum. That thing, right? I mean, this mm-hmm. this 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 causally connected space-time continuum where all these timelines that there are because of r- relativity converge to a point to a naked singularity that's the origin of this space-time continuum that's what that's what originated in the big bang right i mean that thing has an this thing this this totality this concrete totality of space and time and all that's in it did originate in the big bang right uh, that's true. And so the question is, is the Big Bang the origin of everything or is the Big Bang an event that happened in some sort of larger ensemble? And I, all I'm telling you, I'm, I'm not a scientist. Uh, I hang out with them all the time. All my co- <laughs> cosmological friends at every conference I go to in the Canary Islands or in the Caribbean, they talk about the multiverse. Sounds like a rough that, life. Yeah, it, it, well, they have no empirical data to base their theories on, so you have to have a little bit of pity for them. It's all very speculative at this point. But it, listen, the general principle that we know from centuries of human inquiry is that reality is always much bigger and much more encompassing than we imagine. You know, at the turn of the 20th century, in 1900, everyone imagined that the Milky Way was all there is to the physical universe. It was just sitting in this, you know, otherwise empty, infinite space. And now we know it's, you know, it's one of a hundred billion galaxies just in the observable universe. And that's that. So, and that that's just just over a hundred years ago that people thought that. I mean, just right, over a right. hundred so, years ago, they, they. So think what our conception of reality is going to be like a hundred years hence. Well, uh, let, let me ask a couple of terminological questions. Now, now you said uh, they think there there's this eternal thing. Right, and that it's constantly growing and changing, <laughs> except there's no time, so constantly doesn't make sense. I'm not sure. Eternity no, usually time. means outside of space and time. Does does that conception make sense, or is are this just, they just sliding uh, no, off I, into religion? No, good point. We're using um, eternally not in the theological sense of standing outside of time, but in the sense of going infinitely back in time and extending in, infinitely uh, into the future. In other words, the, the, the universe doesn't have a finite past and it won't have a finite future. Okay. Now, now, let me ask so I'm not trying to evade the question. I'm just, no. even if the universe is eternal, it still requires an explanation. Yeah, no, I, I understand. That's a good explanation of eternal. Now I want to ask another question. In philosophy, uh, we have this concept of possible worlds. And some philosophers, mm. or at least one, David Lewis, uh, uh, think or thought that other possible worlds are as real as ours. The only difference is we're in this one. Now, is there any relation between the universes in the physicist's conception of the multiverse and the possible worlds in, say, David Lewis's conception of whatever he's conceiving? There is. Well, David Lewis, by the way, who's, who's the most famous philosopher that no one outside of philosophy has heard of, probably <laughs> the most influential philosopher in, uh, in the English-speaking world today, uh, he died uh, uh, about five or ten years ago, and he had this rather, you know, nutty-sounding idea that there are that all possible worlds, as you say, 
equally exists. There's a world presided over by Greek gods, and there's a world full of unicorns and a world made of cream cheese and so forth. So this is a, you know, a kind of a, a, a fanciful notion, but it is very close to what some physicists and some, especially some philosophically inclined physicists have been speculating about. They say all mathematical structures uh, really exist. And if you're a physicist, the variety of existence uh, is pretty much defined by the variety of mathematical structures. And some of these mathematical structures have enough richness that they have, you know, in effect, uh, the mathematical patterns, which are minds, but, uh, let, and we're just living in one of those in one of those possible mathematical structures. So this yeah. is a kind of a updated uh, kind of Platonism that you're increasingly he- hearing from uh, from physicists so, today. But Max Tegmark is, l- a, is a notable think, example. Let's think about what I, mean, I can imagine. What would drive philosophers to such a view? Because we like flights of imagination and flights of fancy, and what we can imagine, anything we can imagine. Some people believe could be in some sense possible and blah, blah, blah. I mean, that's a philosophical move. Uh, I'm yeah. trying to figure out what drives a physicist, a hard-node empirical physicist, to, uh, to, uh, to, to have this kind of view. I mean, well, clearly we can't empirically confirm uh, the multiverse hypothesis because we don't have any access to those, those, those other, any empirical, cognitive, evidential access to that stuff. So what would drive uh, a physicist to think right. that? Well, two points. On your latter point, no, we can't, but, you know, by definition, the other universes are causally disconnected from ours because the space between our universe and the other universe is uh, inflating faster than the speed of light. Well, so we, mean, we can't we, have any... I, wait a minute, However, wait, a minute. No, have, wait a minute. Slow down. Yeah. The space... Maybe there isn't even a spatial look because I, I understand the Big Bang to have created both time and space. It created this space-time continuum. Is there some other continuum in which this multiplicity of of alternative universes exists? Um, they're not like at a spatial distance. They're not. They're are they, they're not even related no. to one another spatially. No, they're, they're, the the current model of the inflationary multiverse has an inflating spatial arena. And in different bits of it, the field driving the inflation spontaneously decays, and that's when there's a local Big Bang, and the energy is uh, 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 transformed into particles and radiation, and you have a little universe like ours in this larger ensemble. So why would anyone entertain a theory like that if it posits other parts of reality that we have no access to, simply because this inflationary theory explains very nicely the observations we make in our part of reality, in our universe, the cosmic background radiation and and the the patterns there are explained. And so if something says, you know, it explains your local environment and also says reality is much larger than your local environment, there's a good reason to believe that reality is indeed much larger than what you see around you. You're listening to Philosophy Talk. We'd love to have you join this conversation. one This is an encore presentation of Philosophy Talk. The phone lines are closed. Or email. And John, I think you've got an email. There. Yeah, here, here's an email from, from No Name. <laughs> uh, he wants to know, or she wants to know, if the brute truth might come down to that there's a neurophysiological limit to how much humans can understand. I'm pretty sure there is a neurophysiological limit to how much I can understand, but I don't know if that generalizes. What do you think? Um, sure. We, you know, we're, we are, it's like, you know, a dog can't understand quantum mechanics, right? Uh, there, there, clearly, there are limits to under, our understanding. But we're, you know, we're, we're still dealing, 
the, the, going back just to the previous question for a second, why would anyone suspect that reality is much, much larger than what we see around us? Um, one reason is that if there's nothing, you know, there, there, nothingness is the simplest possible reality. But what about the possible reality that encompasses absolutely everything? That seems to be, you know, that's something that we can conceive of. And, um, you know, if once you've ruled out nothingness, because obviously there's something, uh, the next most obvious possibility is there's everything. And, you know, looking around in our, you know, limited environment, we see a very particular universe that's, uh, that's uh, governed by a particular set of laws that has a certain amount of matter and also has uh, sort of mental events, consciousness, and maybe some mathematical entities. But it could be just a, a small part of a much larger reality that encompasses absolutely everything. If that's the case, then... And we say, well, why the, the reason that reality encompasses everything is because that's the fullest and the least arbitrary form that reality can take. And that's an idea that, you know, that goes back to, to Plato, this principle of plenitude and of fullness, that reality should be as full and encompassing as possible. So that would say that, that what that should tell us is that we should be on the lookout for reality, you know, being more extensive and taking more forms than we uh, believe uh, right now. And so, you know, it's one little bit of trivial evidence for that is dark matter. We, you know, we now know that the matter that, that we're made of and the matter that we can observe in our part of the universe is only about, uh, you know, 5% of the total matter and the rest of it is dark matter. What the hell is dark matter? No one can say. Well, you know, this is... <laughs> it, sounds, it sounds like physics, uh, modern physics consists of a lot of uh, things that... Uh, are hard to say. But you mentioned the principle of plenitude, but what if we don't accept the principle of plenitude? I accept the the opposite principle, the principle of not muchitude. And uh, yeah, David, yeah, David, David Hume so, uh, provides a theological hypothesis. Maybe our world is the first rude attempt by an immature God, and that's why it's so messy and not so perfect. And then he went on to other things. I find that about as plausible as the multi-universe thing. How about you? Yeah. Oh, that, that this universe was created by a hacker in some other universe. It's a <laughs> it's a kind of a, ma a matrix simulation. We're actually living in a computer in a in a other go. universe. Yeah, that's possible. Then you have the problem is, where did the hacker come from? Is it hackers yeah. all the way up? But I want to I want to I want to expand on John's thought about the pl principle of plenitude or Leibniz's principle of sufficient reason, which is related every for everything there is a sufficient reason why it is so and not some and not otherwise. I mean, yeah. that's a kind of principle that we find attractive, maybe compelling, maybe our minds are built to think that, but this, the universe doesn't care what our minds are built to, th are built to think. I mean, the, uh, the, uh, what, what our minds are built to think is some kind of our product of evolution and blah, 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 but doesn't necessarily get at the deep structure of reality. So why should I believe your principle of plenitude or Leibniz's principle of sufficient reason. I'm, I have this urge to believe it, but why should I take it as a guide um, to what well, things must be? Those are two different questions. The principle of sufficient reason says always look for an explanation. If there's any fact, there should be an explanation for that fact. If there's anything that exists, there should be an explanation for the existence of that thing. Now, that do we know that the principle of sufficient reason is true? Of course not. But it's a really good uh, right. regulative principle for our inquiry. Always, you know, don't give up prematurely. I, I and that's agree. why I, I don't want to say, oh, it's just a brute fact. Let's let it go. That's 
premature intellectual closure, and it, 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 it's, it, it's lazy and a bit philistine. No, no, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I agree that it's a good regular... Yes, you're both lazy. I, I agree that it's a good regulative <laughs> ideal, so always try, but there's also this thought, even if you go to the multiverse, at some point, you're going to get to the brute facts that have no further explanation. If it's God, God is just a brute fact that has no further... If it's the multiverse, the multiverse is just a brute fact that has no further... Right. Now, you want to know what the nature of the brute fact is and then what follows from the I brute wanna... fact. But but at, yeah. at some place, you just get to the brute facticity of reality, as it were. I agree with you, but I want my brute fact to be a really good brute fact. Now, if there were nothing at all, you would say, well, that that's... Uh, why did reality turn out to take that form. That's the simplest form that reality could take. Well, suppose, I, the, I, I suppose, the, suppose we live in the most, in David Lewis's all possible worlds are real. That's the fullest form that re, and the least arbitrary form that reality, reality could take because it, it includes everything. It doesn't exclude anything. So those are two, two pretty good uh, kinds of brute facts. Now, look at those two extreme, you know, the uh, uh, Nothingness, absolute nothingness on the one hand and the fullest, most plenitudinous uh, reality uh, at the other extreme. And in between, there are all kinds of intermediate realities. Some of them are special in certain ways and some of them aren't. One special reality would be the best of all possible worlds. Suppose I want to get the best of all possible worlds. I'll start with the fullest possible reality that encompasses everything, and I'll eliminate now, the now, nasty, Jim, uh, ugly, G evil bits. Jim, in the best of right. all possible worlds, we don't need to take a break here. But we're not in the best of <laughs> yeah, all possible so, worlds. Yeah, and there's some time uh, that I we, love live jokes. Yeah, some time we don't. There's some time that we don't own, and this is one of them. You're listening to Philosophy Talk. We're thinking about why there is something rather than nothing with Jim Holt, author of Why Does the World Exist? Can anything ever explain why the universe exists? Should we stop trying to answer the question and just gaze out on the world in awe and wonder? The wonder of existence, when Philosophy Talk continues. We hope you're enjoying this free stream. Help us continue to produce thought-provoking episodes like this one by donating to Philosophy Talk. We truly depend on the support of our listeners, and we need your help more than ever. Please become a partner in our community of thinkers by heading over to philosophytalk.org benefits. Enjoy the benefits of partnership, including our weekly podcast, and help us stay on the air and online. And now, back to Philosophy Talk. Making more what for? I got plenty of nothing. Say that again. That must count for something. I'm John Perry. This is Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm Ken Taylor. Our guest is Jim Holt, author of Why Does the World Exist? And we're thinking about the very question, why is there a universe rather than nothing at all? Jim, uh, uh, when, we, when we got started, you, you mentioned that this whole enterprise began with reading Heidegger. So that emboldens me to ask a question. Heidegger talks a lot about nothing. He famously says, nothing nuts. But somehow, for him, nothing is connected with anxiety and all sorts of things. It, when, when he's talking about nothing, is that the same thing as we've been talking about when we're talking about nothing? 
Yeah, Heidegger, um, it reminds me a bit of the uh, Beatles movie, Yellow Submarine. There's a kind of vacuum cleaner creature that uh, that <laughs> sort of sucks everything into nothingness, and it sucks the Beatles into nothingness in their submarine and then the background environment, and then it turns on itself, and it, it annihilates itself, and then the whole world pops back into existence. So, yeah, Heidegger had this kind of, you know, rather fanciful a picture of, of nothing as... A, 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 you know, an annihilating force. And I, I really can't, it's a cute thing to contemplate, but I can't take it very seriously. Um, the, 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 the challenge of encompassing in your imagination absolute nothingness is one that certainly defeated a lot of thinkers uh, who, who thought, you know, finally, nothingness is impossible since when I try to think of nothing at all, I can't get rid of myself. That was Henri Bergson's problem. He thought, you know, he exists necessarily, or you can't get rid of the idea of space. Um, so, I, so, 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 Jim, yeah, I, Jim Sartre, I, I, yes. Sartre said that nothingness lies buried in the heart of being like a worm. I take it that's not your view either. <laughs> well, I think the... You know, the, the, the reality that we live in is infinitely removed from nothingness, and it falls infinitely short of complete fullness of encompassing everything. So, uh, and so it's sort of a crappy, mediocre, incomplete, messy reality so, that has no special like features. I want, to make a, I want yeah. to make a case against the usefulness of this question. Well, not, not quite the usefulness. I don't want to say it's a nonsensical question like maybe the positivist might have said. Heidegger seemed to think it was like the beginning of philosophy. I, I don't really believe that. Uh, here's what seems to me, So, I mean, Here's okay. what seems to me. What are the fundamental things... That is, what are the what are the big, just raw existence at, at the base of all other existence? That's a good question, and don't give up searching for the fundamentals until you absolutely have to. If you think this is fundamental, maybe you're wrong. See if you can derive it from the existence of something else. What are the fundamental things? And then why why is why are things this way rather than that way? Where this way rather than that way is a way for the totality of things to be. Now, the question, why is there something rather than nothing is useful if it, like, kids you the search for the fundamental, but beyond the fundamentals? But beyond that, at best, it seems useful to me as, look at the grandeur of it all, right? It's a kind of awe-inspiring question because you, you can take you can take wonder and all at the prospect that the universe exists at all, but really, in the end, there is only what are the fundamental things? How do they make the rest of the things this way rather than that way? And yeah. no other questions are worth asking. What do you think about that? <laughs> well, you know, one one question that uh, one uh, further and perhaps more interesting question that you're forced to confront is. What role does mind play in reality? What role does consciousness play in reality? Uh, you might think that it's a very minor uh, incidental role because uh, the Big Bang happened 13.8 billion years ago and we didn't show up until relatively recently. So for most of the existence of the universe, we see, at least you know, our part of the universe, there was no mind. There was no consciousness. It was a, a kind of a, you know, a zombie universe. Um, and then suddenly we pop into existence and we think, you know, we, we might cause ourselves to be extinct in the next, you know, a couple of hundred, a couple of thousand years. Who knows? But we'll probably die out before the end of the universe. So it seems as though consciousness is not a fundamental ingredient of reality. And yet, if you try to imagine a universe without consciousness, it sort of doesn't make sense. And 
Uh, that sound, don't take my uh, word for that. You know, uh, John Archibald Wheeler, one of the great physicists of the 20th century, he was the teacher of uh, Richard Feynman. He coined the term black hole. He had this notion of a participatory universe where the Big Bang happens and there are all kinds of sort of possible quantum histories. And it's not until in one of those histories a conscious observer arises to look back on the Big Bang and sort of make that history, the real history, that you get reality in the full-blooded, robust sense. So oh, I like according that. to this theory, that the mind is fu- is fundamental to reality. Well, uh, my, I'm not sure. I'm not uh, going to endorse that, but I think, you know, that that's an interesting possibility well, to open I, I up. Well, I wouldn't put it quite that way myself. I'd say, well, without consciousness, the existence is a waste because there's nothing around for consciousness. There's nothing, there's nothing exists to contemplate the very existence of existence. So without consciousness, it's kind of just... Who cares? Yeah, think, right? of, think of the universe without consciousness. First of all, there would be no flow of time because that's something we project on reality. There would be no colors. There would be no um, – uh, uh, it, would, it would basically be just a mathematical, you know, abstract, barren mathematical structure. So how is that different from mathematical existence yeah. in general? We've got a caller um, on the line uh, uh, at long last. Bur- Curtis in Berkeley. Welcome to Philosophy Doc Berkeley. Glad to have you aboard. Well, hi. Thank you. Um, I just wanted to, to point out, I called in on the question of nothing, but you're talking about just now about, uh, well, it, it, it reminded me of, uh, in quantum mechanics, uh, they require that, you know, the, the probability, you know, in, in the early universe there were no humans, and uh, quantum mechanics so views that, that in order for reality to happen, you know, there's the uh, the state vector. It it evolves in a in a deterministic way, but uh, you know, all kind of superposition of possibilities. And without observation, the state vector does not collapse into you know one of the minor parts. You know, one of the existence. Right. And um, and so you know, if the universe existed, and of course we know the universe did exist because we see it with our telescope looking way back in time, then, uh, you know, there must have been something equivalent to consciousness going on that is, uh, you know, making the universe a definite object and it has a definite history that was in the past and we're observing that uh, before humans uh, existed. Yeah. yeah. You know, this all Thanks, this, this all sounds suspiciously, including what Wheeler said, like you have two things you don't understand. We don't understand why there's something rather than nothing, and we don't understand uh, the collapse of the wave function. Ah, but if we put them together, everything works out. What do you think of but that? But I don't think so. Uh, what yeah. do you think of that, Jeff? That's a uh, 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 th- that's considered to be a quote unquote romantic interpretation of uh, of quantum mechanics yeah. that consciousness is necessary to you know collapse the wave function to uh, make the state vector jump into an eigenvalue of the observable. Uh, which, which, that's a very interesting point that the caller made, but uh, there are alternative ways of understanding quantum mechanics that, that don't involve consciousness. But it is true that you know quantum mechanics. It's like fairy dust. You can, you can, um, you know. Lawrence Krauss says that the universe, the the physicist you had on earlier, the universe quantum tunneled into existence out of nothingness. So, we should always be suspicious when the 
brute fact that explains everything involves the word quantum. Because yeah. there, there could be a little sleight of hand going on. But there is this. There is this. I mean, I'm no cosmologist. I'm no physicist, right? I'm a lowly philosopher. And, oh, that's uh, false modesty. <laughs> yeah, but there is this. I, I am actually amazed. So I said, how much can the fundamentals explain why the universe is this way rather than that, that, that way? And if you think about what progress modern physics has made on that question and what turns out to be fundamental. I mean, Krauss is right about something. Particles are not fundamental, right? Except for the Higgs field and the Higgs boson, I gather it would just be a kind of soup of energy, right? So that that you can, uh, gravity is not, I mean, gravity, why why does gravity just have have just the value that it does? I mean, we're, that's a really hard question, but we're sneaking up on an answer to that. So the number of things that you think just come for free as basics gets, is getting low, fewer and fewer and fewer, and I think that's a yeah. really amazing thing. But if you look, uh, so the uh, uh, physics is uh, getting more and more accurate and making predictions. Quantum field theory can explain the results of experiments to eleven decimal places. That's great. But if you look at the picture of reality that physics gives you, the ontology, uh, to use the technical term, uh, there's no convergence there at all. The idea that you know that, that uh, reality consists of particles bumping around in the void—it's hopelessly old-fashioned. Particles right. turn out to be quantum excitations of fields. Exactly. What are fields? Fields are essentially distributions of uh, numerical values over space-time. So the the you know the uh, the more you, uh, minutely you examine reality, the more it tends to dissolve into mathematics. No, that's and true. And mathematics is, is, you know, there's no kind of, you know, good, hard, honest stuff there. Oh, that's... It's like platonic ideas. So, so that, that's... You know, the whole, and then where does consciousness fit in? Right? Well, that's true. Look, and I, and I say to people who dismiss philosophy, a lot of these physicists do, the dumber ones anyway do, a lot of these <laughs> physicists do, I say, look, actually, the need for philosophy is greater than ever because of the following. The distance between what Sellers called the scientific image and the manifest image is infinitely greater than it once was. Once you get that it's all just a quantum soup and blah, 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 and you know, there's no necessity of particles and all that. Once you get that, then you say, my God, how does consciousness, how does rationality arise? It becomes a harder problem, it seems to me. Do you, do you yeah, agree yeah, or disagree? I mean, the, 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 the physicists now, the, the physicists who think about these things rigorously will tell you re, that reality is actually... A, the quantum wave function living in an in infinite dimensional space, that's the real reality. And uh, you know, I, to, that, I, and when I say to them, you know, do you think people will believe that 100 years from now? Do you think we've now arrived at the ultimate picture of reality? And have you noticed that it bears no rese resemblance at all to the Lebensfeld in which we live, the, the, the living world, the manifest image? Um, so the the you know the, the question of ontology the, of, of getting a picture of reality from science is is more fraught than ever. Yeah. So um, you and I agree, and on that note of agreement, I, that's a place we could just start a new show. But unfortunately, we have to end this one here. And I'm going to thank you for joining us for a fascinating conversation, Jim. Oh, great to be here. Thanks. Our guest has been Jim Holt. He's author of Why Does the World Exist? An existential detective story. So, John, what do you think? Do you know why the world exists? Did we solve the problem? No, but, uh, you know, I was taught that uh, analytical philosophy started with G.E. Moore's refutation of absolute idealism about a century ago. And here we are a century later, and as far as I can see, both philosophy and some of the physicists are, are giving us absolute idealism plus symbolic logic and math. 
So it's kind of depressing. No, well, maybe that's uh, maybe that's uh, the eternal recurrence. Maybe it's we're advancing as we cycle through all the different possibilities, deepening our understanding on each each cycle. Or maybe we're at... maybe we're in the part of the cycle that's going backwards. <laughs> well, that could be too. But I, I think it's a fascinating time. I think we can ask these really hard questions. Really, uh, I mean, I don't think I believe that the question "Why is there something rather than nothing?" is a useful question, except for inspiring all at the wonder of all that there is. But it's related to a lot of questions. Why is the world this way rather than that way? What are the fundamental things? How do we how do we know when we've gotten to the absolute rock bottom where explanation starts? I, I stops. I I think those are those are good questions. Don't you? Yes or no? I don't expect to figure them out. In my lifetime. Well, okay. <laughs> so this, I guess they're good. <laughs> this conversation continues at Philosopher's Corner at our online community of thinkers where our motto is cogito ergo blogo, I think, therefore I blog. And you two can become a partner in that community, and we'd love to, for you to be a partner just by visiting our website, philosophytalk.org. Now, even if there were no universe, no nothing, or maybe lots of nothing, I'm not sure, this guy would still have something to say about it. It's Ian Scholes, the 60-second philosopher. Ian Scholes, how did all this something come from nothing? There's the Big Bang to account for it, or God, but that actually begs the big question. Where did the nothing come from in the first place? Okay, God is and was and evermore shall be, so shut up. And physics says before the Big Bang there was nothing. Not God, not even time, which does not seem helpful. And if it was just nothing from which nothing can come, well, not even nothing can come from nothing, can it? But okay, focus on the Big Bang. Worship the Large Hadron Collider and just let it go. Except we have nothing with us all the time, relatively, from which all sorts of things come. Also, if nothing is the absence of something, that's still something, isn't it? A definition of something else. If there really was nothing, how could we even think about it? What is nothing? A hole is nothing. But it's two different kinds of nothing. A hole can be what happens when you take something away, or what you make when you want to bury something. If that something is me, for instance, after I passed on, it would leave a nothing in the world that loved ones might think of as not me. But was there a not me before I was born? And if I had never existed, what would that nothing be that is the not me? I mean, that nothing would still be around, wouldn't it? Nothing is always with us. When your mother said to you as a child, what are you up to? And you said nothing. Surely you were up to something. When we are surprised by an event, we say it came out of nowhere. It came out of left field where things have no business coming. Remember the first Star Wars movie? It came out of left field. It came out of nowhere. It was a sleeper hit. And then it took over everything. So now we have Star Wars. We have every other movie. Same way with the Beatles. They were just another real nowhere band with teen appeal. Then they became bigger than Jesus, as John put it, and sucked all the air out of the culture. Unlike tech companies before, which were the result of research and development by large corporations and the military and laboratories and secret locations, Apple started in a garage, what we now call a startup, which means that Apple came from nowhere. It started from nothing, an empty carport in suburbia. And now all tech companies have to start in garages. It's a rule. Apple went from being a cult favorite to a mega corporation that owns all the telephones. And now all movies have to be blockbusters before they're even made. So the playing field for movies that do not want to be blockbusters is empty. Movies that aren't Star Wars and telephones that aren't Apple and music that isn't the Beatles suffer. So things are created now, maybe not from nothing, but from or in a black hole of betrayal and tax dodges and temper tantrums and flop sweat and hero worship and the desire to sell us things we don't even want, just to fill the hole that is us inside. A hole which can never be filled, of course, because there's nothing there. We're empty inside. But thanks to the Big Bang, we're still expanding. So there's that at least, which is not, I suppose, nothing. I gotta go. He's a real nowhere man Sitting in his nowhere land Making all his nowhere plans for nobody Well, 
Philosophy Talk is a presentation of Ben Manila Productions and the trustees of Leland Stanford Junior University, copyright 2016. Our executive producer is David Demarest. The program is produced by Devin Strolovich. Laura McGuire is our director of research. Dave Millar is our director of marketing. Thanks also to Merle Kessler, Mark Stone, Erica Topit, and Ted Muldoon. Support for Philosophy Talk comes from various groups at Stanford University and the partners at our online community of thinkers. And from the members of KALW San Francisco Local Public Radio, where our program originates. The views expressed or misexpressed on this program do not necessarily represent the opinions of Stanford University or of our other funders. Not even when they're true and reasonable. The conversation continues on our website, philosophytalk.org, where you too can become a partner in our community of thinkers. I'm John Perry. And I'm Ken Taylor. Thank you for listening. And thank you for thinking. I think I can sum up the show for you with one word. Nothing. Holy mackerel, you're still listening. You must be a big fan. You should become a strategic partner. Donate $250, get lots of cool benefits, help keep the program on the air. Yeah, but really, any amount helps. Thanks for listening. Thanks for thinking. And thanks for donating.